0: Support for Class Dismissed comes from School Status. School Status helps educators at every level take control of student data for increased outcomes and meaningful stakeholder engagement. Find out more at SchoolStatus.com. You are listening to Class Dismissed, episode 244, and I'm your host, Nick Ortego. This episode, five types of emails leaders should never send. Stay with us. podcast that inspires educators through story. Each episode we cover some of the hottest topics and news in the world of education. Plus we hear from a guest with the bright idea for education that you can apply in your community. Our guest this episode tells us how to harness the power of learning through play. Hello, everybody. Nick Ortego here, and I'm joined by a friend, chief academic officer, as well as co-host of the Class Dismissed podcast, Christina Pollard. Christina, how are you doing?
1: I am doing okay. You know, I always get excited when you do that intro. You have such great energy. I start smiling.
0: Oh, good, because like before, I'm like... How are you, Christina? Like before we, <laughs> before we press, before I press re, uh, record or anything. Um, yeah, no, it's uh, we've. I want to apologize to our listeners because we're kind of behind. Like you had some personal things yeah. going on. I've got a lot of personal things going on, and you and I had trouble hooking up. And I think we're like a week behind or so on, on getting an episode posted. But we're back in business. And,
1: well, I and tell you. Fun. If there's an educator out there listening, they completely understand when it comes to the month of May.
0: Right, I know things that must be crazy for you. It's um, like a vapor. <laughs> yeah. Hey, do you let me ask you this? Speaking of being busy and like tools that help, um, and this will nicely segue into our article today. Um, have you ever used Marco Polo? Are you familiar with what that is? Yes. You know, like the, the application? Yes,
1: I used to use it years ago. Um, I haven't used it in the last few years. Not sure why.
0: The reason I like it, and I only use it to talk to like one or two people, um, but Leslie, my wife, she uses it all the time. And it's really? it's clever because she talks to her girlfriends this way because what's so great about it is it's... it's. Let me step back. It's video that you mm-hmm. talk to your phone and, and it connects to your friend, um, but it's not... Synchronous. It's asynchronous, right? So, so they can
1: look at it at any time and as many times as they want.
0: Right. And it's like, so if you just want to have like a long conversation with your girlfriend or whatever, and you're just like, hey, how's it going? Here's what's going on in my life, blah, 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 blah. And then you, you know, you get done and it goes to them and they can watch it. The next day, a week from then, or whatever. So
1: now you make me want to add it back and send my bestie a message.
0: (laughs) You should. I I mean, I really think so. Because there's so many times you want to catch up with that bestie. But, you know, they're busy. You're busy. Life. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And that's just a good way. And I know Leslie keeps up with like five or six girlfriends of hers. And that's really the only way she talks to them. See? I really
1: need to think about that.
0: The reason I I bring that up is because in a lot of ways, like one of the advantages of email, which is kind of old-fashioned now, right? We've got Slack Mm -hmm. and text messages and all the other things. Um, Email is nice because it is considered asynchronous right like somebody can typically send an email and it doesn't need that immediate response usually right um and so today i kind of wanted to talk about an article i found um, it's called five types of emails managers should never send so Mm. noting that email is a good tool (laughs) but here's when not to use it we'll just have a quick discussion about it you ready let's go all right number one they say checking in before a deadline like with agreed upon task or completion (laughs) date sending an email reminder communicates that the colleague is not trusted what are your thoughts
1: that is called King or Queen Micromanager. However, I do have some people that appreciate when I send a reminder. So I think you just have to know your people. I sent a reminder email today, knowing there's a calendar invite for next, I mean, yeah, for next week um, for the deadline. But it crossed my mind and they're so busy, I just shot an email that said, hey, still waiting on your so-and-so. But I do have people that would be offended by that. So I know not to send it to them. I think you have to know your people.
0: And what did I do to you an hour ago? I sent you a text message and it was like, (laughs) friendly reminder. But listen, I greatly
1: appreciated it. I checked my, my, uh, my alarm it wasn't set correctly again so then i set a timer for 25 minutes so that i would be ready on time so i just think it depends on the person i i don't mind
0: (laughs) yeah definitely something to think about though because you're right some people will be offended and they're like i know we have a deadline i'll be there you know like let's say this
1: yeah if you do it twice then that can be annoying right no doubt
0: all right next one urgent when it's not bosses should save the red flags or open immediately for true emergencies otherwise it can be like the boy who cried wolf right
1: Yeah. So in my instances, if I send an email that says open now or I type um, the word important in capital letters, it's because there's something from the State Department, Mm -hmm. um, you know, something with regulations, not necessarily that we can get in trouble, but it's a big deal. And I do not do it very often. Um, And so people will open it and get me what I need or whatnot. Um, I'll even go as far as saying, hey, just open this tomorrow. Don't look today.
0: Yeah, I've done that before. I don't know that I've ever sent an email that's like open immediately. I feel like if I if I need somebody to read something immediately, I don't send it via email.
1: Well, I'll give you an example. Today is the official last day of the testing season. Okay. So the State Department has been sending district test coordinators different emails and messages with a very important reminders, things that have to be done by four o'clock today, or you, you know, you could get some testing violations. And so I immediately send it read now. And then I send a text message to the testing chat that says just sent some important emails from MDE open right now because I understand the seriousness of four o'clock. But as they've sent emails all testing season, I just forward them. Mm-hmm. So you got to, you know, I it hear. just depends. Maybe, maybe it just depends on in the school districts. We don't want to hear from the state department that we didn't meet a deadline. They don't call you. They call the superintendent. You don't want the superintendent to call you.
0: <laughs> right. Well, and then another thing, though, that's important about email um, that we didn't re- really mention off the top is that it's a it's a record, right? Like, it's like, hey, yeah. I notified you of this thing, and I can't help it if you didn't read it or acknowledge it, you know? So it kind mm-hmm. of is a CYA tool, I guess. Um, yeah. The next one is one I think that's a no-brainer. They say negative tone emails can't convey body language or facial expressions that communicate subtle human emotions. So if you're upset or distracted, it's best to wait before sending that email.
1: I agree. And that's with any form of communication, in my opinion. Cool off. Think about it. Gather your thoughts. Mm -hmm. Think about how it would be perceived. And, you know, just remember everybody makes mistakes. Everybody is human. And you don't want to burn a bridge or, you know cause tension within your department or on your team. So I definitely agree with that. Sometimes you just have to walk it off.
0: Many a times I've had a much more measured response by sleeping on it a night. And then, you know, you, you can able to communicate with that person. If you're still mad the next day, then maybe there was a reason you should be mad. But I feel like if you sleep on something... Mm -hmm. And you should have a better perspective on how to approach the person about it.
1: I think it comes with maturity as well, because I can think back to my early years as as an administrator when I didn't have good reflective practices, when I didn't pause and process my feelings, because really this is a business and it's not supposed to be personal. And so your feelings shouldn't be. Um, embedded in your decision making. And so I remember when I've I've made those mistakes many times, and if I could go back and change them, I would, because then I may not have communicated in in a way that was offensive or hurtful to somebody, because I was driven by emotion. So I agree.
0: Yeah, I mean, if I reflect on something that I would like want to change about my whole tone in my 20s and early 30s, it's just like, be nicer. Pump the brakes. Like you let you know, give people the benefit of the doubt. Like I and, and,
1: can't see you being tough uh, on folks. Oh,
0: uh, whatever. Uh, yeah. No, you're I'm, just so
1: kind well, to me.
0: Uh, we'll see. Maybe I've just grown up a little bit. I don't know. Not that I ever have a reason to. I know be mad, I've come a long but, way. Yeah,
1: I'm, I'm one to admit, I've I've come a very long way. And the thing is, as long as you also have a forgiveness bone in you, because it's not intentional. It's not that somebody's trying to hurt you. Oftentimes, people are under pressure. We we don't know anything about. Um And they're going through experiences. And so I just think back on, you know, things I could have said and done differently. And it was driven from emotion, not necessarily, um, you know, a part of the decision making process.
0: All right. The next one I kind of don't agree with and I'll explain, but here it is. Communicating big changes. We've all been to the meeting that could have been an email. Uh, but what about when it's an email that should have been a meeting? It says major initiatives and organizational changes are best discussed with everyone physically present um, I'll go, I'll just say my piece on this. I feel like, yes, big decisions should be discussed with everyone physically present, but then should be followed up with an email. So there's record of the meeting. I don't know. That's my thought.
1: Well, you definitely need the email follow up on anything major being discussed or anything you want to make sure you keep on the hearts and minds of people as we move forward. So I definitely agree with that. Um, I also agree that major initiatives and changes should be done in a face to face setting. Um, it, it's, it's, people can digest it better. Um, they can get your energy and see how you truly feel because sometimes leaders are put in the position to make decisions and changes that come from even above you. Mm -hmm. And you might not agree with it or really, you know, appreciate it, but you gotta do what you gotta do. Right. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. That's always hard to like execute something that you don't agree with And it's like, you still want to be like, well, corporate's making us do this, but then that's kind of sending the wrong energy, right? And that
1: is passive aggressive and negative. You cannot, it has to be, we have Mm. decided this is what's best for the organization. Go home and chew on a bone. But (laughs) during the meeting, you've got to show unity and understanding so that all of the team buys in because that's the best moment to get the best productivity.
0: And you said something, you said you think it's important for um, the audience to feel your emotion. But I think Mm -hmm. it's important for the manager to kind of read the room too, while they're giving like, Oh, that wasn't really well received. And we might need to loop back around on this one. So, Mm -hmm. All right, last one. Oh, that's
1: a great article, man. Yeah, I need yeah. To share that with principals. Yeah,
0: I like this. Um, all right, last one. Weighty personal decisions. It says it's never a good idea to fire, lay off, downsize anyone in an email. Uh, it's cowardly and can be inhumane, demoralizing, traumatizing, and I think everyone would agree with that. Like, come yeah, on.
1: doesn't that go back to another one we just discussed about you know going for a walk, processing before you respond? And so that's the same thing with that. That you know you have to think about this is someone's livelihood. Mm-hmm. They have families. They have responsibilities, they have emotions, and how you handle it is extremely important um, for their emotional state. And I will tell you something that I learned um, early in my career, and it's called uh, conscious uh, conversations. Listen, tough conversations need to happen at the end of the day and or the end of the week, because it allows employees to go home, emotional, upset, they Mm -hmm. get time to reflect, process, and make decisions on if they're going to comply and move forward to make the adjustments, or if this is not the best place for them, and go away quietly. So if you want to choose someone or fire them, Monday morning is not a good time.
0: (laughs) Uh, My dad told me, um, and he managed a lot of folks, and he told me um, once that if you fire somebody in some ways you might have failed as a manager and you just have to uh-huh. be willing to accept that. Cause like maybe you could have brought that person along in another way or, you know, mm-hmm. so in, in some ways firing somebody should never be easy. And and really when I reflect no. on having to let people go and I've never had to do layoffs, but I have had to do actual like firings for cause. And, Duh. um, yeah. those and are hard, they still bother me today. And I mean, it was mm-hmm. years and years ago. And, um, but the, some of them just, you know, you know, you, like you said earlier, you're taking away someone's livelihood. And there would be people who I really, they were good at their job, but maybe didn't show up on time six times in a row, right? Like, and what else can you do? You know?
1: Exactly. And I've only had to terminate uh, literally a couple of people, but it's, It's your actions along the way, how much support, how much training, how much communication, um, you know, came into play before you arrived Mm -hmm. at the decision that this isn't going to work. And generally, when you have provided the appropriate training, support, conversation, direction, you know, everything and exhausted all possibilities. Generally, you don't have too much confrontation when you have to say, you know, this is just not working out. It's not going in the right direction. Um, It just it's it's not that it's easier. It's just uh, it's less confrontational for both parties versus they made a mistake today. It's egregious. And you just you got to fire them right now. Always have to, you know. That's only happened to me twice. And I had to just, like I said, take a walk and go, man, I hate to do this. Yeah. But they made that decision to do X, Y, and Z. Then the next question is, who's going to sit in on this conversation with me? I need a witness.
0: (laughs) Right. Always.
1: That's a great article.
0: Yeah, I really liked it. Uh, Again, five types of emails managers should never send. We'll link to it. It's in um, Fast Company Magazine, but we'll link to it in the show notes. Uh, Are you ready for today's bright idea? Yeah, bring it on. Learning through play is a great way for children and adults to develop new skills, but it's also a great way to alleviate stress and trauma and even tap into some different parts of the mind. Our guest in today's Bright Idea segment is an expert on learning through play. Dr. Bo Stjern-Thompson is the vice president and chair of learning through play in the LEGO Foundation. For those who don't know, the LEGO Foundation has researchers and labs throughout the world that study learning through play, and they have a new study out on children technology and play. Dr. Thompson, welcome to Class Dismissed.
2: Thank you very much. Thank you
0: for having me. I'm, I'm very excited to have you. And I, before we dive too deep into new studies and, and learning through play, let's help our listeners understand a little bit about um, who the Lego Foundation is. How do they relate to what we all know as the Lego company?
2: Sure. So the Lego Foundation has actually been around for more than 30 years, but it's uh, not until recently, the past decade, that we have been able to elevate our purpose and impact, which is to imagine a future where children can be empowered to become creative and engage lifelong learners because that's what most needed uh, to be well-prepared to thrive in today's society. And that can be achieved by learning through playful experiences. And the way we can achieve that is because we own 25% of the Lego company. Hmm. So the family have decided that they want to give the 25% of the assets of the company for social impact. So basically to benefit children all around the world, through programs, through evidence, and through advocacy. And it's across all types of play, all types of materials, and in more than 30 countries around the world.
0: You said a key word there that I think probably a lot of our listeners don't realize. You said the family. I, Lego, I think a lot of times, we this fantastic large company, we see them in all of our stores and video games and everywhere, uh, movies. And I think we look at them as this gigantic you know, entity corporation, publicly traded. This is a family-run company. Am, am I wrong about that?
2: Absolutely, no, that's right. It's a family-owned, family-run company, uh, and um, they are giving 25% of their assets to the foundation, which has has an an independent charter and independent board also where the family is part of. Uh, But they have this huge ambition and passion for making a difference for children, uh, also in places where Lego is not usually uh, established and recognized uh, so we have broad programs um, towards teachers, towards parents, towards educational systems, uh, all across all across the world.
0: And can you give us a little quick, maybe interesting nugget on like how did Lego come about? Like these blocks that they've been around for what fifty, sixty years?
2: Yeah, the the blocks more than sixty years. But basically, you know, it's it's a uh, it's uh, a company that uh, has evolved over uh, four now almost five generations. And it started with Ole Kirk basically as a carpenter shop back in the 1930s. Um, the Lego is really uh, like God in Danish it was playing well. So he we had this uh, shop with carpentry uh, and during the the Great Depression in the 1930s in Europe also he didn't really know what to do because there wasn't much to do. So he figured out he could make toys out of the scrap wood he had on the floor. So he basically started to put together with his children. Uh, small wooden toys. That has evolved now from Ole Kirk from wooden toys to Godfred developing the Lego system of the plastic bricks mm-hmm. into Kel could develop something like more play themes and minifigures and Lego mind and technology. And now the fourth generation, uh, with Thomas Kirk Christensen is now chairing the board is really leading towards, you know, having greater societal impact on children across the world.
0: Well, that's fantastic. And, and let's talk about the foundation a little bit. I mentioned at the top that you, know, you guys have researchers and labs that, that study the value of play. I mean, what does that look like? How, how many labs and researchers are we talking about?
2: So we have uh, partnerships, uh, around 15 plus partnerships worldwide. We have research centers supporting them in US, uh, in Europe, in Asia, and Africa. I think we've always benefited from the tremendous knowledge that exists uh, among the LEGO group uh, of different entities, because when you develop, you know, hands-on learning materials and creative approaches, you know a lot about children and materials and so forth. But what we really decided to do is we need to elevate the evidence behind the benefits and understanding of creativity, play, and learning. So basically, a decade ago, when I started to kind of mobilize that evidence, we figured out that when you walk around the corridors of universities and educational institutions, there's no door to play. You just can't find that as a research, as a field of study. So it exists in psychology in education, technology, leadership, some places. But we decided to bring together that in a community. So now we support independent researchers across yeah, 15 um, institutions, and they also help us support our initiatives into the interventions. Uh, I think it's also important to recognize that actually there's a lot of practical, good examples and knowledge out there, which we're also supporting and encouraging people to share. But the main challenge we have is really this language around play. So everyone say, you know, play is obviously good. Like it's about you know, intrinsic motivation. You really want to do it. You're immersed, you're engaged, you are testing and trying things out. But many say it has no really purpose. It's not really serious for any outcomes. So what we had to do was to make it a scientific journey to really understand what is the science behind play and how does it benefit children's development and learning. And that needed to bring together a broader range of research partners.
0: Well, and I think in a lot of ways, you're speaking to an audience of educators, uh, a lot of K through 12 teachers right now, and and they have maker spaces. They, I think, at least believe that that you can learn through play, and a lot of those makerspaces that they create have Legos actually in them, so so children can play and learn. Um, what is the science like i know you can't dive into you know in-depth research studies but can you give me some some takeaways that that the science has actually shown to kind of say yes educators you're doing the right thing they are learning while they're playing
2: absolutely i think uh, when we meet uh, educators around the world they're not really uh, you know don't, don't see that the idea of playing and engagement that's different from from learning generally but it starts basically with if a child or a student has a passion for understanding, a passion for learning things, even when things are difficult, they want to keep on doing it. So everyone wants to nurture that motivation to dive into topics, that curiosity, their thirst for understanding and testing and trying out things. I think the channels have been in the past, that, that has been a little bit in opposition to the understanding of knowledge acquisition, standardized assessments and grades and so forth. But what seems to be emerging now is we know that we need a different set of skills. We know the world is a little more uncertain. We are changing jobs more frequently. So what we really need is a creativity to have alternative ideas. We need critical thinking to be able to understand information and validity of information. We need to collaborate with new people. When we look at these type of skills, you know, play is ideally suited to come up with ideas, to critically reflect in processes, to collaborate with others, and to regulate one's emotions. So when we look at the characteristics of when a child is completely immersed, testing and trying out things, there are a few things that are coming up here. First, you understand things much deeper when you test and try it out, and when you really enjoy learning things. You basically they remember things for longer. There's no summer loss, but also you understand concepts better, like concepts of science, some concepts of language, and principles, because you have tested and tried out. And also, you are able to practically apply that knowledge, as we said, as I mentioned, to new ideas, to practically, practically problem solve, to uh, to test and try it out. So the curriculum is not knowledge in isolation, but actually using that knowledge to develop a new project to engage with real life problems. So where we're moving towards now, what we're saying is play has often been seen as different to education, but when you think about learning through play, it already exists, as you say and and illustrated, maker labs, you know, project-based learning, active forms of learning, experiential learning where you go explore the community, engage in real-life practical problems, you know, it does exist and it has a much more prominent role now in education systems worldwide.
0: Specifically, I guess, when you're in, say, a makerspace, whether you're working with Legos or building anything, Tinker Toys, whatever. I mean, what skills is is a child or even an adult learning while they're trying to build something that maybe we don't realize they're picking up
2: on? That's a very good question because that's some of the things we need to bring more attention to. Basically, observe and understand, reflect on how we're learning while we build and make things. So the first obvious thing is attention like our sustained attention and problem solving, is much more apparent when you build and make things. And it's literally because when you're physically engaged, manipulating things, you have much better ability to keep focus. You adjust your eyes and your hands together. Um, But it's also uh, about the, the particular manipulation of objects. It's also about mathematical thinking. It's not only systematic thinking like with Lego bricks, but it's quantifying, it's sorting, it's cause and effect and reasoning. It's all about this process of manipulating objects and materials. So attention and problem solving, you know, mathematical thinking. But also many of these processes, when you find yourself building things or doing small experiments or even, you know, having little uh, baking experiment at home, Sometimes it's difficult. Sometimes there are frustrations. The ability to emotionally regulate your frustrations and challenges is even more something you practice when you're engaged in making and creating things. And obviously, you know, it is about often coming out with alternative solutions and alternative ideas. So that's much easier when you have practical things in your hands. You're testing and trying out different ideas. And, you know, when we think about Lego as a system, but also many other materials, it is a social system. You can engage with others. You can think about symbols and language and so forth. So the the, the crucial thing is here, it's not only one skill. It's actually breadth of different skills that you're using. And while you do that, you understand mathematics, language, you understand concepts, you understand knowledge at the same time as you develop skills.
0: A lot of this is about curiosity and exploration. And as I was researching before we did this interview, I I was listening to some presentations that you had given. And in it, you you talked about a study that I wasn't familiar with, but maybe you can kind of elaborate on a little bit. You you said that there's been a study that you can predict an 11 and 14 year olds academic and intellectual ability by observing their curiosity and exploration at four months and five years old. Can, Can you tell me a little bit more about that?
2: Absolutely. It's a fantastic study by uh, Mark Bornstein. And it it is, as you say, it basically provides assessments of uh, children at five months, at four years, 10 years and 14 years. So literally follow children for 14 years. And at some point it's surprising that if you look at how children physically move around, how they balance, how their motor abilities are at the five months and four years, you can predict 10, their academic intellectual abilities at 10 and 14 years. But when you reflect more on it, it's actually not surprising because children who move around and balance, grasp materials around them, they get more information. They get more exposure to things in the environment. And what children need, particularly in the early years, is experiences. You know, they have this enormous millions of uh, of neurons that are connected while their brain grows and matures in the first uh, years of life. And they need to have hands on physical experiences to make sense and connect these neurons. So when children touch objects, they get information through touch and sensing. Uh, they have much richer attention focus than they have things in their hands. So this ability to move around is basically enriching how your brain wires to the world around you. And it means that they get more information, more experiences. That they use to think about mathematics and literacy and attention and flexibility when they get to age of 10 or 14 years is basically how they wire their way of thinking for uh, later achievements
0: well and i guess if i'm understanding the takeaway there properly i guess i'm hearing you say you know as a child we learn through exploring and playing why not continue that through later parts of life is, is that correct
2: Absolutely, you should continue that later for 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 two reasons. I think uh, the first is uh, is basically the skills we're looking at right now, which is our, our emerging, is to be much more adaptable and much more flexible. So when we think about the uncertainty we're in, sometimes uh, creativity we need to apply in our everyday life. You know, you need to be able to uh think creatively about solutions. And it means you have to move around. You have to find new ways of developing skills. And that means you have to in- explore, be curious uh, as you grow older. The second thing is uh, neuroscience really begins to emphasize as plasticity in your brain. So, you know, your brain still continues to be plastic and can kind of change. its uh, its structure as we grow older it's particularly important in adolescence also where we have much more social exposure and we need to you know we're much engaged in risk taking and so forth you know practical testing and trying out also ground us but this plasticity of the brain means that we can keep on learning like we can keep being curious and we need to do that to be much more creative and flexible throughout our lives
0: All right, so let's dive into a topic that is very current, I think, for a lot of parents out there right now. And that's digital play. I mean, it's one thing to have the blocks and be building something. It's another to have the iPad in front of the child. I think any parent of a child age 5 through 18 right now knows that it might even be a concern. You know, maybe they're getting too much digital play time. Um, I think you guys recently did a study on digital play. I mean, are we hurting kids helping kids? Are they learning? What's the takeaway?
2: It's really fascinating and it's something we discuss everywhere in our research right now. And we're also looking at digital play and well-being. But the key takeaway is everything is a balance. You know, the exposure to technologies is something we need uh, and children need to be able to be familiar with new types of technologies, new types of innovation, new types of tools. But too little is not good. You know, they need to be familiar with it and test and try it out, but too much is also not good. So being able to think about technologies as tools and, and, and engage with them and test and try out uh, your exposure to them is important. But what we want to get away from is the traditional sense of just uh, screen and no screen. Uh, there is, a, there is a, a balance of different experiences to the need. And at this point, particularly during COVID-19, obviously there's too much sedentary work. People have been literally, you know, too isolated and not too much physical activity. And we need to ensure that children are physically moving around, socially engaged and so forth. But when we come to talk about technology, we need to move to a discussion about how are we using technologies, not only what devices we are. And we started a huge study with a survey of more than 3,500 parents across uh, Europe and Africa, across socioeconomic differences. We had GoPro cameras, cameras on children, they follow around, they explore the environment, they are intuitive teachers and parents. And basically what we see is children are using technologies in fascinating ways, which are completely integrated with how they live. They're not sitting passive in front of screens. They're moving around with their phones. They're documenting. They're always talking and chatting with others. They're taking things apart and manipulating it. So children's knowledge... And the skills that are important, including emotional well-being and the family relationships, are actually also supported through technologies. But there are particular ways we need to be informed of how that's done. And this is what comes out of this child tech and play study, that we can now give much better advice to parents, to teachers, to policy and media. First and foremost, technologies are social, like don't think about yourself sitting in isolation with a screen. It's really about how you collaborate, how you chat, how you talk to others. But it's also moving to a point where you're not just sitting, uh, being exposed to information and looking at videos, but you're encouraged to personalize, test ideas, and try out new things. So the ability for technology to move from a passive state to an active state where you can set your own goals and personalize is really critical for, for technology nowadays. And then what we've seen is that the engagement of children and adults have been critical. So for a few reasons, obviously, the discussions one has with children, when adults sit next to it, what are you doing? How does that work? It's not only important for adults to learn about how to use technology, but children actually understand technologies much better and when they test and try out it. So the knowledge and use of technologies, they can uh, engage and learn about when they play, when they experiment. So there's a kind of a diet and a balance to use the technologies, but it's really how we use it that is important.
0: Yeah, I think, you know, like you said, everything in moderation, right? And I think every parent would agree with you there. I, I'm personally in kind of a different camp because I, I grew up as a gamer, right? Like I, I, I played mm. those games when I was little and now I have kids. Um, mm. I, I really got to hand it to you guys with what you've done with some of your games, like say just even like a Lego game on Xbox or PlayStation or whatever it's You're playing a game, but the whole time you're, you're solving puzzles, basically. It's like, if I have to pull this lever, then I have to do this, and then I have to go here. And then if you have a second player, they, that second player has to work with the other player to solve these puzzles. How much of that game design came from y'all's research, and how much of it was just maybe a, a game designer being creative?
2: It, it's a combination. I think when we have uh, our Lego idea and the Lego values behind it, that is inherently about nurturing and supporting children to be creative and engaged in how they use materials, and that also means that our, like the Lego designers and our partners with Lego and without Lego, also keep in mind that it's not only about children doing things and taking initiative. It's really how they can personalize their exper- experiences. They can create new things, and they should feel they can do things they couldn't do before. But then, also on the other hand, we also have research that looks into the platforms like Minecraft, like Scratch, and also some of the intersections between, you know, Lego Mindstorms, the physical robotic and the encoding, in which way children can use technologies to combine, recombine, and experiment. And the key, the key benefit is what you're trying to to also illustrate is there's a breadth of different skills you're using. When you are engaged creatively in making your own games and coming up with different ideas, and that's really where the main benefit is for educators. Which we also come up with recommendations now is it's also much easier then to adapt these platforms to curriculum. You can literally, you know, invite children to build, uh, you know, the geography you are studying in in school, or come up with a simulation of mathematical concepts. So these platforms are very flexible to integrate with curriculum. And to provide alternative forms of assessment.
0: Speaking of flexible, did I hear you say once that a standard Lego brick that has, I guess, you you would say the, the six little circles on the top can be, and you, if, I guess, if you have a, a six of them, you can make almost like a billion combinations. Is that right? yeah, that's yeah,
2: amazing, right? It's 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 basically yeah, six uh, bricks, two by four studs you can combine them in 913 million different combinations with the same color. Wow. So, you know, there's so many opportunities to use just six bricks. Yeah.
0: That's 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 a pretty neat fact there. I, I find it hard to believe that it's really that high, but I'm sure somebody way smarter than me has, has calculated that and figured that out. Um, well, again, Dr. Thompson, this is so fascinating. I really appreciate uh, all the work that you're doing with Lego. Uh, and kudos to Lego as a company. I have to say, like this is a, a toy company, essentially, that has remained relevant through generation after generation. So just as from a business model standpoint, I think you guys deserve to be applauded for 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 what y'all pulled off over many decades so uh are you ready for our pop quiz yep all right first question if students could go to school for only one subject which subject should it be
2: community so students would go to study the community because the richness of experiences for school and all across all kind of curricula they actually get from the real world
0: what are we not teaching in school that we should be teaching
2: a joy of learning. The most important thing for children to learn is to enjoy the learning process, be excited about challenges and the confidence in learning. And that's also what lasts the longest into well-being and success in life.
0: What does every child deserve?
2: Attention and care. I think we often think about just caring but sometimes we just keep attention, observe what they do and ask questions.
0: What's the biggest challenge for today's educators?
2: I think the challenge is that educators are in quite a position between a pull from governments, international standards and parent expectations. It's a challenge, but also an opportunity. Because we really need to see schools and teachers as role models for how to navigate, you know, expectations towards society and skills and knowledge, and helping mobilize parents to see schools as a place where children can thrive, be safe and be curious.
0: What's the best gift to give an educator?
2: Time for professional development and engaging with their peers. Mm-hmm. You've seen that over and over again that there's Quite a push in terms of time for their administration. It takes time to prepare. When we give them opportunities to connect with each other and be inspired and in time for professional development to see other people's work, they really thrive.
0: Which teacher changed your life?
2: My teacher was, my, was a, the librarian. Uh, so my librarian was also my math teacher. But basically, exposure to the library of all the different facets and diversity of stories was my my, my best teaching. Do you mind
0: sharing the name? Uh,
2: uh, Esther. Esther. <laughs> That's
0: what it's right. <laughs> name. Um, last question: pen or pencil?
2: Uh, pen.
0: All right, Dr. Thompson. Again, we appreciate you taking the time to talk to us about uh, learning with play. Uh, thank you so much for all you do, and uh, thanks for coming on. Class dismissed.
2: Very exciting. Thank you for your fantastic work with the podcast.
0: Thank you. That's going to do it for this episode of Class Dismissed. If you want to send us an idea or comment, remember you can always email us at info at or tweet us at dismiss.